Coming up on another Badaptation episode of That Was a Show. Working Girl was a show. It was a successful 1988 Mike Nichols movie first, and then naturally they rebooted it as a sitcom two years later. Both working girls are ambitious, from Staten Island, and bop around Manhattan in white sneakers. One of them has mall bangs, and one does not. One is Melanie Griffith, and one is a pre-speed Sandra Bullock. Bryn, Aaron, and Barry have a lively discussion about the two women named Tess, and, if you can believe it, another woman named Bryn, who is short 1N. <gasps> Sit back, kick off your high heels, and enjoy. <laughs> we grew up during peak sitcom, Seinfeld, Friends, The Fresh Prince, but those shows were diamonds in the rough. This podcast is not about those diamonds. It's about the rough. Some sitcoms were briefly popular in their time. Some were cancelled almost immediately. You probably won't recognize most of these, and you'll ask, that was a show? That was a show? The podcast about failed or forgotten sitcoms from the 80s and 90s, starring... Bryn Burney, Aaron Yeager, and Andrew Helmer as Barry. A Radio Gizmo production. <laughs> I liked last week we had a little bit of a, we had, we had a good preamble in our episode. <laughs> I got a preamble for us. All right. I think All it's right. uh, moderately exciting to announce to listeners that we now have our wonderful new website up and live. Oh, yeah, we do. We have a shiny new website. Yep. You can go to thatwasashow.com. That's a good, uh, that's a good solid URL there. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly it the one you would expect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no surprises there. Yeah. We're also working a little on a few more uh, fun merch ideas, so stay tuned for that. Yeah, look out <laughs> for those. We'll announce those soon. Well, what we can say is that they are going to feature some of the best tropes that we have highlighted yeah. from various shows, and we'll announce soon what that's going to look like, but it'll be fun. I will be wearing one. They can't see you. It's it, it's it's a podcast. <sighs> Barry coming in with the logic. Coming in hot with the logic. <laughs> so how you doing, Barry? Uh, I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, another uh, a bunch of celeb deaths this week. I know. Uh, they it's just gonna be it's gonna be the <laughs> the way the show opens. Yeah. Apparently, this I guess better not start... have to be a new segment. Yeah. We're gonna start with obituaries, like uh, like usual. Louis Anderson and uh, Meatloaf. It, it's a weird time. I feel like it's uh, it's a weird, sad time for that. Um, Louis Anderson, I, you know, I've never watched Baskets, but I hear it was incredible. I'd heard good things. Yep. Yeah. He won. He he was winning awards for that. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I started listening to an episode of uh, the WTF podcast that features a re I guess it's a re-release of an interview with Louis uh, Anderson from uh, probably from years ago. I didn't yeah didn't check what date it was recorded, but he's a really interesting guy, um, and he grew up with uh, quite a lot of trauma in his childhood, mm -hmm. 
but uh, really translated that into a, a really unique comedy voice. So yeah, I, I yeah. feel like he had a very he had a reputation for being a very kind soul. Yeah, he seemed he seemed it very yeah. sensitive. I, I, I was my my uh, my thing with Louis was always his his animated show, which came out when we were kids. Yeah, uh, life, life life with, with Louis. Louis. Yeah, I remember life with it Louis. Was, such a kind-hearted little yeah. like almost kind of like an animated wonder years almost uh just about a young louis anderson i i was a big fan of that so we're continuing on with our bad adaptations that's right series um where we talk about a sitcom that was based on a very popular movie so this one's a brin pick yeah. why don't you tell us about it yeah so this week we're covering uh working girl the sitcom Working Girl premiered on NBC in April 1990 and was canceled by the end of July 1990. It was canceled after eight episodes aired, but 12 were produced. The sitcom was loosely based on the very popular and iconic Mike Nichols film of the same name, which starred Melanie Griffith, Sigourney Weaver, and Harrison Ford. The main character in both the movie and the sitcom are working class secretaries from Staten Island named Tess McGill, who pursue moving up the corporate ladder. Melanie Griffith plays Tess in the movie, while in the sitcom, Tess is played by a young Sandra Bullock. It's only a few of these superficial details that are actually the same. <laughs> uh, it is very much its own story world. Working Girl, the sitcom, has a big cast of characters, including Tess's parents, her Staten Island friends, Sal and Lana, who is also a fellow secretary, Libby, another secretary, Bryn, <laughs> Tess's snooty boss, Everett, a dopey, waspy fellow executive, and the list goes on. It's a very big cast. That's um, great. <laughs> yeah, for this episode, we watched the pilot and episode eight, uh, which was the final episode that aired. So I basically picked it because Working Girl was a very successful and iconic movie from the 80s. It came out in 88. Um, and, you know, it was just one of those movies that really like hit the zeitgeist back then. I have like a special affinity. I don't know why, but for movies that talk about women in the workplace during that era, like I really like, you know, have a, a special nostalgia for this movie and nine to five. Like they really <laughs> for some reason, I think it's because I've like worked similar jobs so much like nine to five, it was the first one of the first movies to pull the curtain back on young women working in the corporate world. Uh, there were a lot of things about that movie that really like hit with people back then, namely a lot of people flooding in from different boroughs of New York. Um, in this case, it's Staten Island, like the Staten Island ferry is shown and it's like full of uh, young women just like trying, like all bleary eyed and trying to get to work. And it shows the kind of hustle bustle of everyone trying to get to their nine to five jobs in, in Manhattan. And they're all wearing sneakers uh, while carrying their high heels and they change in their high heels at the desk, which was such a, I don't know, a poignant thing back in the day. Uh, but now I just look at that. I'm like, oh, that's very practical. And I, I'm sure I did that as well when I was in that kind of job. But yeah, in, in, my, in my office, they're just under they just have different shoes under their desks. Yeah, exactly. That, that, <laughs> that's the move. You just have a bunch of you have a pile of shoes, a pile of shoes. Yeah, like it, of dress shoes, like under your desk. 
And in the winter in Canada, it's especially right now, it's basically snow snowmageddon here in Toronto, Ontario. Uh, you know, you're wearing your your big Sorel boots and uh, you ditch them at the door in the office and then you put on your your shoes. Now, obviously, I don't have to deal with any of that because I'm in a work from home sitch. But uh, <laughs> I can I have like a lot of nostalgia toward that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of reality. Um, yeah. So the movie itself explored themes of, you know, working class folks and versus the waspy and high powered people of Wall Street. So it was kind of like a commentary on the classes um, and whether someone from a working class background really could move up the corporate ladder. Um, so the movie, you know, it was a big deal. Like it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, um, including like Best Picture. And Mike Nichols was nominated for Best Director. I have to say, what re in this rewatch, because Aaron and I watched rewatched the movie as I well. I had never seen the movie before. Oh, actually, sorry. I rewatched it. Yeah, watched but we it watched the first it time. together. I could that, see. Th that doesn't, that, that is not a surprise. Yeah, <laughs> I, I could see. Yeah, exactly. Aaron hasn't seen something. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and to be clear, that's not because of the subject matter. That's not because it's about no, women it's in the workplace. No, it's because Aaron hasn't seen anything. I'm, yeah. I, my level of what would you call it? Like the degree to which I'm a successful cinephile for someone who works in film is not great. Yeah. It's very common it's very for, for me to have not seen. I've still never seen Scarface. Oh, boy. Oh, you're OK. That one. You I mean, can, it's not great. That uh, you can leave that. All of Michelle Pfeiffer's looks. That's, yeah, that's and, like one reason to watch it because she's so glamorous, uh, you know. And but. if you want to hear the song, push it to the limit like 20 times. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I kind of do. Maybe we'll watch it tonight. I also Aaron. have a lot of nostalgia for movies from the sort of mid to late 80s, probably because those were coming out right as I was around four or five years old, like right when I was old enough to start forming long term memories. So like the world I was born into is the look well, of... Scarface is like a early. No, I'm, I'm early, talking. I'm talking working girl. Yeah. I'm not oh, talking. Okay. Ne yeah. Next week, we'll, we you know we can watch Scarface when we, before we watch Scarface the, the sitcom. Short Could sitcom. you imagine? Could you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh boy. Um I mean that could be made now maybe, but <laughs> Although there have probably been sitcoms that have done Scarface parody episodes. Yeah. Like I, I mean, assume a lot of animated comedies and I feel like always sunny. I mean, I know they did an expanded Serpico one. <laughs> oh boy. So <laughs> Uh, yeah, so anyway, where I was going with that is we rewatched it and I could really see Mike Nichols' style of directing like popping out big time. Like it, it, it seemed like he intended for this to be like the graduate of the of the '80s era. Like he's sort of this filmmaker that really wants to capture a time and place. Like and you know, young people feeling alienated, and you know, I don't know. It's it's interesting, and that it does. It, it captures yeah. a time and place, if nothing else. It does. It is very much a time capsule. Um, and I feel like Working Girl, the sitcom, it is very, you know, it, it it's a couple years after. So it comes out in 90. So it feels like maybe they're trying to bring it more to a an evergreen place. Like, I feel like the movie 
was very, very 80s. And I feel like the sitcom, they're trying to make it a little bit more like timeless, if that makes sense. This is the sitcom is definitely a more palatable version of all of this. Oh, like totally. this is it is yeah. it is a lot safer with the material. So yeah, making it just a generic anytime, any city, any office, that kind of goes in I line mean, they with do what yeah. this Preserve feels like. The Staten Island ferry in yeah. the in the yep. opening. Yeah. So and, basically And the accent. And the exactly, accent. Exactly. The accent. So the things that are the same are like, you know, the opening the opening theme has Sandra Bullock basically doing everything that is done in the opening of the movie where, you know, you see her get up and go to work on the Staten Island Ferry and she gets arrives in Manhattan and she's like with a huge crowd of people hustling and bustling and she's in her sneakers and her white socks and, you know, she gets up to her office. And it's funny because another similarity is that at the end of Working Girl, the movie, she ends up working at a company called Trask Industries. But then she starts working at Tr- like the company that she works for in the sitcom is also called Trask Industries, but it's completely separated from the plot of the movie. Yeah, because in the movie, her getting the job as a junior executive at Trask is the climax or yeah. like the, the ending of the movie. That's the big Spoiler. payoff. Spoiler alert. Whereas well, in this sitcom, she's at Trask as, as a, a secretary, secretary and wants to move where, up. According to the dialogue, she's been there as a secretary for six years. Six years. Yeah. Yeah. So there's also so there's all the. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not it's not a league of their own. It's not a sequel. It's a reboot. Yeah. It's basically like they've taken the same themes and they've turned it into a sitcom. You know, she's from Staten Island. She's from a working class family. I do. um they they also use the song Let the River Run as the theme song, which was heavily featured in the movie, which is a Carly Simon uh, song. <laughs> <laughs> and, but in the sitcom, they, of course, can't get Carly Simon to perform it. So they have another vocalist. Well, the licensing fee would have probably been yeah, huge. So it's the same song, but it's without. So it's basically like a, the off brand version of the movie yeah. in, a, in a sense. But it's very much a sitcom. It's got, you know, the same kind of formula as a sitcom. I was also very intrigued that one of the characters was named Bryn. Because uh, yeah. I, I don't get that that often. Even though she's the antagonist. Oh, well, OK. So here's what it's one in. Yeah, it's only one N. I've got the double N going on. But this is only the second time I've seen something with uh, a character named Bryn. The other time was in the movie Bridesmaids. And both times, (laughs) both times, it's an antagonist. I have to say it's always a blonde woman. And they're always an antagonist in some way, but it's very different. <laughs> so I would love to see more Bryn representation, but uh, maybe, you know, maybe the Bryns can actually be the nice characters. I don't know. Agreed. Because I think I'm a nice character. I, I definitely related more to Tess personally, because. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you are not a you're not the no. Bryn in this. So I'm not sure. Bryn, uh, Bryn Newhouse or whatever. Now, the before fuck her we name get is. too much deeper into analyzing what works or what doesn't work about yeah. the show, did you want to tell us about the plot yeah, of the episode we wa- sure. episodes that we watched? So basically, in the pilot, we follow Tess on a typical day at work. Um, she gets an alert that she's going to be um, sort of reassigned to support an executive named Bryn um, on another floor. And her whole task is that she's going to like help Bryn with this process of 
getting new recruits for a marketing executive position. So she's supposed to help her in a very admin role in this. And then she realizes that, oh, maybe I should apply myself uh, because she is like very, you know, she's very ambitious. She does want to move up within the company and she feels like she knows enough about marketing. So she plays with the idea and she's told by Bryn that she needs to provide all the potential applicants with this information to write a marketing report on one sector of the business. So she's got all the tools that she needs to basically apply herself. She runs the idea by Lana, who's her friend from Staten Island and also a secretary at the company. And Lana kind of shoots her down, kind of says, you know, oh, you don't have a chance in hell. She tells her parents, who I thought were very, very endearing characters. Um, her oh, parents. Great, great <laughs> they were, characters. They were awesome. Uh, I, I'm so glad that you both liked them because I really liked the parent characters. Yeah. So her, her parents, uh, Joe and Fran, operate a store. It's a little in, deli grocery it, yeah, type place. Yeah. In Staten Island. And they seem like, you know, they're they're pretty successful, but they're very much in that kind of working class blue collar world. And she tells her parents her plan to apply. And at first they're kind of like, you know, they're supportive. And there's a really sweet little um, beat with her dad where he talks about how he believes in her. He just doesn't believe in the system. I loved that line. Yeah. yeah. Like he, he's basically like, I believe in you. I just don't know if they'll give you a shot. Because, because he's poo-pooing her going for this job. And she thinks it's because he doesn't believe in her. And yeah. he's trying to explain that, like, I just don't yeah. want to see you get hurt because people who come from where we come from don't get these jobs. And it's not because I don't. Yeah. And it's, yeah. He, uh, he shoots her down pretty hard. He pretty does. hard. Like, Yes. For a sitcom, I was like, oh, man, we're we're just getting into this poor girl. I know. I know. So everyone everyone is very skeptical of her plan. Um, And then in that exchange with her and her dad, her dad's talking about this this local guy named Fred McDonald who um, runs a very fancy uh, boutique butchery. And he. You know, he's able to sell the same cuts of meat that they are, but he calls it pate. And so, you know, he's like this big shot and she's in he and he basically tells her, well, not everyone's going to be a Fred McDonald. And so Tess decides um, after some deliberation that she's going to just go ahead and do it. And uh, but we don't fully know that right away. We don't know that until um, later in the episode. Um, Bryn is like very excited. She's like, oh, I found the perfect candidate for this job. It's this guy, Fred McDonald. And then we realize that Tess basically applied for the job under the name of uh, this guy, Fred McDonald, from her dad's anecdote uh, with mm-hmm. a brilliant uh, marketing report. And um, so, yeah, but so you, she's, she's you're also you're forgetting that. She submits the report herself. Right. And they won't even look at her. Her, her yeah. boss, yes. Bryn, Sorry, says she has no that. chance in hell yeah. because she doesn't have an MBA. So basically her parents were sort of proven right in one beat in that Bryn turns her nose up. At, it's weird saying my own name. <laughs> yeah. Can, 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 I, can, I, can I cut in here for a moment to just point out one little detail that I liked where at that time where that comes up, where it's like we had lots of candidates with MBAs yeah. from Ivy League schools, you have no chance in hell. There was a little beat, a little scene we see where Bryn had just come from a meeting interviewing one of those candidates. 
And it's another woman who looks like her doppelganger. Oh, yeah. And they shake hands and she makes a joke about how this candidate for the job was in the same, like the same sorority at Yale that she was. And I thought that this sitcom actually did a better job of defining the class system conflict that's going on in this story world than the movie did. Yeah, I think it does, too. I agree. And it makes... You know, the uh, we'll get into it more, but I think the sitcom does like a lot of things a bit better. Like it makes a lot of these characters way more three dimensional, in my opinion. Yeah. Um. But yeah, basically, she scams her way in because Bryn isn't um willing to read her report, and she submits a report as Fred McDonald. And then once it comes out that it really was her that submitted it, Bryn is pissed, and it's a whole thing. But. AJ, the like Trask, the the big head honcho has already read the report. He loves it. And it's all going to come to a head. Um, He comes into the office. Tess is like, you know, doesn't say anything and doesn't sell out Bryn. So then she is kind of like, oh, okay, I see that you're loyal. I'm going to give you this promotion anyway. So anyway, it ends on a positive note. Tess gets the job and everyone's excited. And so basically it kind of kicks off what is supposed to happen for the rest of the season where she's adjusting to this new role. And, you know, she's now this like executive, this junior executive moving up the ranks. I can tell you enjoyed this show and you're excited about it because this is the most detailed you've ever been in a description of a show. Well, yeah. And I also just watched it and I've had a lot of caffeine. So, you know, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I, I would say that I also liked it. So I'm 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 excited to talk about it. I'm not going to bury the lead on this either. I I thoroughly enjoyed this show and. The couple of things that I was a little concerned with or thought might not work based on watching the pilot, mm-hmm. after I watched episode eight, I was like, oh, no, no this totally makes sense. And, and I'll, yeah. I'll kind of, I have a kind of closing thought that I'll add near the end, but like any questions I had about where they were going with this after episode one were kind of answered by the time we yeah. watched episode eight. And I was like, okay, they, they thought about this. They they actually, like you said yeah. before, this isn't like a sequel or directly connected to the movie. It's a reboot. It's like inspired by the same character in Story World, but it's its own thing. They clearly did make choices where they thought about it. What is the way that this story translates best yeah. to a sitcom? Mm-hmm. Uh, which really distinguishes it, I think, from the one we did. For anyone listening who listened to our previous episode about A League of Their Own, where our conclusion was that that was attempting to be a sequel to the movie and many of the ways they tried to wedge it in there to pick up where the movie left off didn't work. Yeah, literally the only character who is the same but isn't the same is Tess. Like everyone else is brand new. Like everyone... Else is just like a brand new like it's it kind it can stand on its own I would say like that's the thing it's like under oh, completely the, completely the brand yeah. of like working girl but it is yeah. you know it is could could completely stand on its own yeah yeah it's a it's a mash scenario where it's its own thing it's its own telling of a story but it's a different story I mean you know the in this one her deceit is very quick you know she puts her in, uh, the uh, the wrong. Or in this case, uh, a clearly white man's name on a uh, yeah. on a thing, and she gets a and she gets a job in the movie. She pretends to be, you know, her boss, basically. Yeah. Right. So, like, yeah. I also thought that in this one, like, again, this is you guys just watched it. It's been a few years since I've seen the movie, but from all my recollections of the movie, is Sigourney Weaver's character, her boss, 
is terrible. She's yeah. she's a, an outright villain, whereas yes. Nana Visitor's Bryn is not. She is yeah. antagonistic yes. and generally is not in the right, but she's not necessarily being vindictive Very about it. Good yes. point. And and that that's what I really appreciated is that yeah, yeah, she's an antagonist, but she you can tell there's cracks and you can tell that as yeah. the show developed, probably the women were gonna bond over things and like yeah. she wasn't yeah. gonna betray her like Sigourney Weaver's uh character like in the yeah. movie. Well she wasn't spiteful. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like she realized kind of in that pilot, like she's still an antagonist, but at the end of the pilot, you can see yeah. that she realizes that she made an error in judgment. Like she is able to admit her fault in yeah. in that situation. I think a lesser show would have taken the power out of Bryn's hands yes. and had the big boss man hire Tess. Very good point. As a opposed to this, yeah. where the boss guy goes, you know, because they're talking about who to hire and he yeah. goes, well, it's your decision. Yeah. And like doesn't get involved. Yeah. And then she does choose to pick her because she's like, well, it's the right thing to do. I and it's her. Say, yeah. And because she didn't opt to throw Bryn under sure, the bus sure, in that sure. moment. So they gained kind of a mutual respect in a sense. And you know yeah. what? I think all of this points to guys, <laughs> a female writer. <laughs> I think it was a dude, though, wasn't it? <laughs> no, no, like this. So, well, okay. Well, the the show was created by Kimberly Hill, and okay. um, what's the the guy? There is like, is it Lonnie something? I'm Gina? just making it up. <laughs> but I feel like it was Lonnie something. They, right. you're right. The, the movie so, was written by a guy. Yeah, the movie was. That's my point. Oh, it, the, and you can tell. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, like so the the show the show is written yeah. by Kimberly Hill and Tom Patchett is the other like co creator. But you sure. can you Lonnie can Lonnie to his friends. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. Uh, but yeah, you can tell because these women are all three dimensional and they're not yeah. pitted against each other. And you know, in the movie, Sigourney Weaver's character is like cartoonishly like evil. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. she's cartoonishly duplicitous which is a very toxic thing that was happening in the 80s where women that were high-powered executives were the villains like because mm -hmm. uh, while they wanted to show women in the workplace they also wanted to demonize a lot of them because like you know think about uh, fatal attraction that's like a, a much cited yeah. <laughs> movie where it was like a reaction against women in the corporate world. Right. Like people were mad that there, so many women were succeeding. Yeah. Well, what, what we see in this show is that the Bryn character is an elitist who yes. comes from this very elite upbringing. And she does to some degree recognize by the end of the episode that as a result, she had a blind spot to seeing that, you know, the actual the potential, the potential in, in Tess. In Tess mm -hmm. And so the, the show speaks to that class difference yeah. between them and the fact that they're each coming from their own separate bubbles. But the Bryn character isn't malevolent. She just yeah. has a blind spot. Yeah. So Nick, sorry, I'm laughing every time we just say the Bryn character. Yeah. I know. It's I know. so weird. It's so weird. But yeah, a another thing that I really loved was just like how three dimensional all the women were and. Like, particularly the other um, women that were secretaries. I knew you were going to uh, yeah. bring this up. I'm glad so you brought that Lana up. So <laughs> Lana is, like, not an ambitious person, really. Lana is going to, you know, presumably be, like, she's content, like, working, you know, in the steno pool. She's, like, that's her, her deal. But she, like, has a lot going on outside of work. Like, she has a very active social life. 
She's a lot, you know, she's she's got a lot going on. Like that is just her she deal. Seems- Mostly happy too. Yes, yeah. exactly. You know? And she's not necessarily interested in finance per se. Yeah. Whereas Tess she's just like I have a interested job. In I that. pay my bills. I work hard. You know, but this yeah. is you know that's where it ends. And then there's also Edie, uh, who I really liked mm, as well. Mm-hmm. She like had all the best one-liners, but her plot, which we didn't get to see in either of these episodes, yeah. unfortunately, is apparently she's a musician. Oh, interesting. So she, so her character had a whole nother life outside of the office. So because we didn't watch any other episodes, we didn't really get to see that. But I was reading up about the show and this was like her, you know, Hmm. she was like had this whole thing how she was always just a temporary. She was Tessa's temporary receptionist, but she, you know, really has this like gig as a musician. So to me, it's like, oh, no, these characters are very, very fleshed out. Like they are they're you know, whereas I found in the movie a lot of them are like very kind of homogenous. Like they were just like, yeah. you know, all the secretaries were archetypes. one way. Yes. Yeah, there are there are archetypes. Yeah. Yeah. But they're all yeah. like one way. And then, you know, all the corporate ladies are all another way. There's like no variation. Mm-hmm. There's no life outside of there. Uh and like I really like um her mom Fran. Like she's just <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, and yeah. we'll talk more about that for episode eight when we yeah. get into that one. Because yeah, we'll her mom's got it. a subplot. Um I also really liked the spinach salad moment and good. the yeah. Libby character and uh, that whole thing. Yeah. Where... Oh, sorry. I called her Edie. I meant Libby. The, the actor's name is Edie. Oh, OK. <laughs> so we're talking about the same I person. Libby. She's, Libby she's, was she's, the best. She's great because she's she's like a Joan Holloway with the with the edges sanded off where she's trying exactly. to help, the, right, help right. her fellow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the yeah. spinach salad scene is where. Uh, Tess is finally getting her chance where she's going to try to slip into Bryn's office and present her own sort of application as a candidate. But meanwhile, uh, Bryn's saying, I need you to go down to the store and get me a spinach salad for lunch because it's like her secretary. And so she's on the spot like, well, I want to go in and present my application, but I can't do that while simultaneously getting her lunch. And then... Libby jumps in and like gets the attention of yeah. everyone like, in the room. Who's got a spinach, who's got a spinach salad? Immediately snatches yeah. one out of someone's hand, and they're just like, "Here, this is yours. Take this." Libby was a problem solver. Yeah, and I and like supportive. That, yes. I like that the other the other secretaries they're all propping each other up yeah. like that too. Yeah, because yeah. it's not just Libby. Because the girl's like, "I do. Here you go. It's yours." And then they, yeah. when she gets the job. They all get excited for her. Yeah. And like it's 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 a very positive. Yeah. Very positive show. Yeah. So, you yeah, know, it the, is actually it's not very cynical. It's not. It's a positive show. The one thing I found kind of off and confusing was like the fact that right immediately following that she goes into Bryn's office and like it Weird. jumps. It jumps to the yeah. next scene. Where she's talking days to her parents. Later. Yeah. Days later. Yeah, days yeah. later, where she explains what happens in the office. They don't show what ha- what happens in the office, which, you know, in terms of storytelling is really weird. Like, why not show that go down where Bryn turns her down and tells her that yeah. she doesn't have a chance? But I wonder, and maybe this is just me, like, being too, like philosophical but maybe they didn't want to show that because it was too mean-spirited pitting two women against each other i could see it or like like, like, i could see a version of it where they're yeah where it's there but mm, this is a little harsh 
Uh, yeah, maybe they didn't want to show it and they just wanted to have it as an anecdote later on. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was uh, kind of an odd choice just in terms of general storytelling. It's like, why would you just explain what like such a big moment? <laughs> I could see a situation where maybe that scene was written. Maybe it was yeah. even shot and it was cut yeah. out because also I kind of feel like the interaction afterwards where yeah. it gradually comes out that she was not given the chance to even present the report. It trickles out. It has to be pressed from her. And that scene is maybe better as a result of having not gotten as an audience to know that that happened. It keeps the conflict where the conflict of the episode is, which is in the uh, between her and her father. Yeah. But I really do feel like that. I think the scene was written, written, maybe shot. Because that scene feels like a a retool scene where you're like, okay, well, we cut that scene. We got to get the information from that scene into the next scene so we can keep moving. But it's probably better for it because I don't know, like from how harsh it sounds, like not that uh, Bryn ever becomes, say, a likable character, but it would probably be hard to stick with her. uh, The Bryn in the show. The Bryn in the, yeah. (laughs) this Brenna, I yeah, think I'm likable. It, it, it would be it would be hard to stick with her if like she's just outright terrible right off the bat. Yeah. yeah. Also, so one character we haven't mentioned at all because he's kind of like inconsequential uh, is I guess this version of the workplace weirdo. It's uh, it's he's um, great. Yeah, it's Everett um, Rutledge, which is I'm sorry, the waspiest name you could ever come up with for a character. So George Newbern plays this guy. And George Newbern is interesting. Like, aesthetically, in my opinion, he's like the off-brand Paul Rudd. (laughs) Yeah, 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 a little bit. Without the, like, you know, he's also charming, but he just, he doesn't quite have the sparkle and and the uh kind of... Yeah, he's a a poor man's Rudd or a poor man... Okay. I I was thinking a poor man's riser. Like a Paul, a Paul Reiser. The first scene where they introduced him in the pilot, he mm-hmm. seemed to be maybe a little bit of a of a skis or a little bit of a pompous guy. Like, I don't know. There was a tone in the very beginning when they introduced his character where he seemed yeah. more like one of the guys in the movie. Like, yeah. if you recall the opening scene of the movie where I was like, yeah. oh, no, because that's the kind of character where. In a feature film, if the character's not supposed to be likable, like, fine, okay, they play their role, that's their point. But in a sitcom, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to put up with this well, this guy. But he doesn't go that way. And then you realize, no. like, upon watching further, no, 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 he's kind of like this weird, dumb... Yeah. He's also kind of self-aware of the fact that he failed up into this job. And yeah. there's, a, yeah. there's a line where... He has an in- he has a lot of interesting interactions with Tess and one of them he seems to also be quite supportive of her career trajectory and he- there's a line I don't remember what the line is but the tone is basically I'm glad I don't have to prove myself the I, way I, you do <laughs> I remember it's uh yeah. he reads she gets him to read her read the report that she wrote uh and everybody agrees that it's like you know really great and he goes man what a great report I could never report uh, write a report like that Thank God I don't have to. I never have to. Yeah. 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 It's great. It 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 just shows that he it it shows a the the men in this show are never they're never punching down on 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 the women. There's never a uh, the the men are the butt of the joke in this show usually. 
Yeah. Uh, and he also is a great comment on exactly that. He is, he's privilege personified. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Yeah. Like he clearly went to an Ivy League school and is from a waspy background. Yeah. And that's why he's in the position that he's in. He's not. And he knows it. He knows it. And it's, you know, but he's not an asshole. Like, he's like, he's just kind yeah. of this doofus who's He's just there. a nice guy who's... And, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if they were intending there to be like a will there, won't they? I don't know. Maybe he was too goofy for that, but... I think, yeah, I think he's too goofy. Yeah. I think, yeah. Or... Neither, neither of the male guys in this are, yeah. I think, intended to be love interests. So basically, you know... Which is a huge win, by the way, because I, exactly. I was afraid when they introduced both characters that they would be will-they-or-won't-they characters. And by episode eight, I'm like, I don't think they are, and I don't think this show has one. And I'm like, thank God, so, finally. Yeah, so uh, Anthony Tyler Quinn, a.k.a. Jonathan Turner, <laughs> uh, plays Sal, who's um, one of Tess's friends from... Staten Island, he's basically got this big crush on her and he it's not the best because he's basically doing that thing that's like a trope from the 90s where he's just trying to wear her down like he's just constantly asking her out and trying to pursue a relationship and she's not interested, but he's always hanging around and trying to. But apparently he's like. He's aware to be, of it. Yeah. yeah, he's he's aware that it's that it's not happening. Yeah. Yeah, so he's so it's kind of this thing where there's these two guys that are around young guys, but there seems to be at least in the two episodes that we watched, no real connection. Like she's very laser focused on her career and her family, and even like you know her friendships because there's like we'll get into it with episode eight, but like she you know she's like very you know she's a very evolved young woman. Like she's yeah. not even thinking about her like like yeah. romantic relationships. And that character, by the way, is one of the most perfect hunky deadbeats that we've come across exactly. so far. He is like the trope. We don't see yeah. him in a white tank top, but you know, I'm sure it was in there I'm sure somewhere. under his leather jacket, that's what he's yeah. wearing. Exactly. Give it time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, give it time. He works as, I think, is a really good comment on like that trope because like even like their opening exchange is like, hey, you want to go out this weekend? And she's like, hey, how long have we known each other? And he's like, oh, you know, since eighth grade. How long have you been asking me that? Since eighth grade? Yeah. Three times a week since eighth grade. I don't know. I'm just guessing maybe 2,000 times. Uh, and she's like, <laughs> yeah. and, and what have I said every time? And he's like, no. And he's like, and she's like, yeah, exactly. He goes, yeah, but I really thought I was wearing you down with those last 400 He literally times. says wearing yeah. down, yeah. And that's why I think it's, it's meant as a, a comment on that because yeah. that's sort of the end of it. Yeah, that that's the last time that that really becomes part of it. And it just sort of uh, ends up being like he's just a joke and he's just a he's a doofus, you yeah. know, like uh, he's really he's enjoyable. <laughs> that was a show. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, honey, why haven't you eaten your toast? I don't know. I guess I'm just sick of this regular boring peanut butter. Well, maybe it's time we make our meals an adventure. Whoa, what's this? Wander nut butter? Try it. Wow, it's good. It's spiced, but not spicy. You're such a witty and precocious child. <laughs> Spread the world with Wander Nut Butter's internationally inspired flavors. It's made with only peanuts, spices, and salt, and no added sugar. Try every flavor of Wander Nut Butter's today. 
don't know. That kid sounded a little old. Really? I thought it was pretty good casting. That commercial failed to mention that Wander is based right here in Toronto, Canada. Or that you can eat Wander nut butters as a healthy snack, like, you know, adding it to a smoothie. Also, there are three flavors available. Inspired by spices from India, Morocco, or Thailand. I really liked the Moroccan peanut butter on toast with apricot or peach jam. I've tried Wander. It's delicious. It looked so enticing. These ads really work. You can even cook with it, like if you're making a soup or a sauce. We've been talking a really long time about this commercial. Yeah, wait, is this meta? Are we part of a commercial? Is Wander a sponsor if that was a show? All I know is that our listeners can get a 15% discount when they order Wander Nut Butters online at tastewander.com slash twas. That's taste. W-A-N-D-E-R dot com slash T-W-A-S and use the coupon code TWAS15 at checkout. And you can follow them at taste.wander on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. What are you reading from? Where is that? You didn't answer any of my questions. <laughs> so it seems like all three of us quite liked this show. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm starting confident to, in saying that, yeah. I'm starting to realize after analyzing that character, as mm-hmm. well as the uh, the guy at the office, uh, what did you say his name is? The dopey Everett. guy, Everett. Everett. That these characters are kind of personifying those tropes and cliches in a way that seems purposeful. Yeah. And now I'm starting to wonder if this is the first show in a long time, not since uh, Hi Honey, I'm Home, that we've yep. come across a show that A, all three of us liked, and B, seems to be maybe doing uh, a satire on tropes that were common at the time. And is that the reason it was canceled? Very, because and very, very pe- subtly. Subtly. Yeah, it's really subtle. It's way more subtle than yeah. High Honey, high I'm, honey Home. I'm Home. High was... Honey, I'm Home is so high concept. This yeah. is not. High Honey, I'm Home was very high concept and it was very clear. Like we are here to yeah. to take the piss out of this type of world, whereas this show's subtle, but it is starting to feel like maybe this show was one of those cases where it was canceled because some people weren't ready for that level of critique. No, I mean, yeah, sure, I maybe, maybe, but yeah. I feel like it's such a subtle show. Like, I feel like it, it is very much like your standard sitcom. Like, yeah. it is, you know, I, I don't know why. Like, I feel like maybe it- Then why was it canceled? I don't know. Maybe because it's just a mid-season yeah, edition. Yeah, a lot of things. Like, yeah. it could be anything. Like, I- Maybe the audience didn't really care about, like, women in the workplace at the time. Well, that's, that's, like, what, I, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like, you know? Like- is it th- one of those situations where the some network executives or yeah. audience testing felt like in the at least in the sitcom realm that those themes that this show was trying to tackle they yeah. weren't ready for in a sitcom world. Yeah, like they weren't ready for very female driven things, I guess. Like, you know, and there is no obvious romantic tension. That's, yeah, exactly. There is no, you know, like there's nothing. It's like, not it, a rom-com. It, it really appro- improves upon the whole thing that happened in the movie. Like the movie is a disaster in terms <laughs> of the romantic entanglements. Like Sal basically is the the answer to the Alec Baldwin character from the movie who's her deadbeat cheating boyfriend. You know, he's kind of like the Staten Island guy who's a Lothario, but <laughs> she's not dating him and she's not interested. So maybe 
audiences in 1990 were kind of like not, I don't know. Yeah, not ready for a woman who is truly independent. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think there's a lot of things that can be said about why it was canceled. I mean, one of the obvious ones is probably exactly. Yeah, it's it's female driven in a way that was not seen on television then. And frankly, not a lot even now. Yeah, Um, it all you know, it's also movie adaptations, even though this is the series that we're doing. They fight uphill battles. Yeah. Networks think they're sure hits, but MASH is the exception to the rule, right? Like most of the time these shows come out and they are canceled almost immediately because somebody thinks it's an easy cash in, but they almost never work. There's a reason yeah. why you're, you're, you don't see it as much anymore because eventually somebody was like, you know, nobody ever watches these. So I think the fact that it was a working girl show, people were like, I saw the movie kind of like League of Their Own. I saw yeah. the movie. I'm, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I, I already did this. Even though, um, yeah, it's under that brand. It's under the working girl brand. It yeah, is its, it's own better. thing. Yeah. And people didn't give it a real chance to develop, yeah. um, I guess. So all of this to say is the one thing I think we've avoided talking about, which is baffling to me uh, at 48 minutes in, is <laughs> fucking... Sandra Bullock is so good in this. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. not that she isn't always usually, but this really shows and and we've it's been a while like early 90s you know mid 90s to early thousands Sandra Bullock comedy did a lot of comedy was yeah. very good at it and she has a great she has such quick delivery she's so yeah. such a likable energy to her that like it's been so long because like she's been doing dour dramas for like the last like 15, yeah. 20 years that you forget like, oh, my what God, her strength like, was yeah. Oh, yeah. the yeah. moment, yeah. the moments yeah. where she gets excited about something feel so genuine and her like yeah. exuberance. It's quite refreshing, yeah. it's- actually, to see a sitcom character that is as ha- like ch- like I don't even yeah. know what the word is, but like just just appreciative of the little wins. In yeah. in the course of the story, hot take. I don't know why she didn't become a huge star like someone like Jennifer Aniston did in Friends. No good reason. Like I don't Apparently. know. Yeah. You know, based based on this, the yeah. performance in this show, she should have become America's sweetheart at that time. Like I'm very, you know. Yeah, I, it was another. Speed was four years later. Yeah, it, and you know? we'll get into it in the the spinoff. But it's yeah, like she she is incredible like she is like very likable she's very believable like all of it is like great know. accent yeah great accent. exactly she does the accent and it's not in a way that's it's not obnoxious. over yeah, it's not overwrought it's a sustainable level of yeah just it's there but it's not <laughs> a constant gag yeah i guess we should talk about episode eight yes yeah so episode eight again it was the last um episode that they aired um mm-hmm. Basically, the the Cole's notes of it are uh, Tess is told that she needs to get a fancy corporate makeover in order to, you know, start impressing the higher ups and be involved in more meetings with them. Uh, Mm -hmm. Bryn basically tells her that, oh, you can't come to this meeting and present your own work until you have a new wardrobe 
and you get, you know, a new hairstyle. You deal with your accent Exa- and you deal with yeah. your, she basically says your whole personality, your whole yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, you you're, you're you Bridget Tuttle trash. And that's, yeah. like, you know, we got to give you a makeover. So, yeah. So basically, Bryn sets up this whole thing where she's going to go to, which which department store was it? Was it Saks? It's Saks. Okay. Yeah. It's so Saks, yeah. she's going to get styled and get a whole new wardrobe. And then she's supposed to go to this specific salon and get her hair done. So it's this whole thing. Get that, this $120 hair, haircut. Yeah. Which is just a French braid. <laughs> which I guess was, which I guess was a lot of money for a haircut in the yeah. 80s. Well, it wasn't even a haircut. She got her hair put in a French braid. Well, you're not gonna, you're not gonna cut their star's hair. Yeah, but anyway, so, so basi- yeah. Ba- basically, yeah. So she has to get this like makeover, which is a very tropey thing of the. It's kind of the pretty woman thing, where it's like, oh, yeah. to be taken seriously, you have to have a certain look, and uh, yeah. So she's tasked to do this, and at the same time, she's supposed to be hanging out with Lana. And uh, what's his name? Uh, Sal. And they're supposed to do a pool tournament, which I found really preposterous. <laughs> they bring it up a lot, though, that this is what they do. They bring it up in the pilot, too, like, that they, they play billiards. It's so weird. Like, is that a thing? Like, where they wear matching jerseys? Like, the thing that Aaron and I laughed about was, like, what? Was the bowling alley yeah. set not available? We both noted, like, oh, I, I, my note is I see they went with billiards as, the blue, of- as the blue collar sport uh, instead of bowling. Yeah. Let's put it this way. They they went at it from a smart production standpoint. Why are why yeah. are people writing bowling alleys in when they would have to shoot on Barry, location? Because that yeah. is as we have established the iconic working class yeah. hobby. But I feel like this is the smart answer to that where somebody is like, "Look, if we're going to do this all the time, we we're going to have to shoot at a location." Or we just set dress a pool table and then there yeah. you go. Well, but that's Much also smarter. the smart <laughs> thing is that, you know, a lot of sitcoms would, would have a character who's on a bowling team, but never actually show bowling. Right. That's just a thing that happens off camera. So I really appreciated that they went with something they could show. Yeah. And I do want to- It was ta- a fun scene. Yeah. And yeah. I do want to talk about the subplot involving- her mom yes, accidentally we'll becoming a pool shark, which is amazing. <laughs> so basically, yeah. So like Tess can't make it to the 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 billiards tournament on time, and Lana's very mad at her. And there, so the the main tension of the episode is that Lana feels that Tess has changed since her big promotion, and she's not making enough time for their friends. And she's spending all her time getting made over and hanging out with Bryn and and working. So she's not giving her her real friends any attention. And then so because she's late for the billiards tournament, they need someone to sub in for her. <laughs> and they recruit Fran, who happens to be there with with Joe. And then Fran, like like kind of stumbles into becoming this like pool shark this yeah, like okay, hustler well, if, if we're gonna do it the full trajectory <laughs> is friends like I, I don't want to do it I don't know how to play billiards and I'm not gonna be any good I'm you're not gonna all gonna be, gonna be mad at me and the dad is like no, no no let me just give you a couple quick pointers you do this you do this hold it like this he shows her how to hold hold the pool yeah. cue and he's like you'll be fine and Instantly, she sinks the first ball, and it turns out that she's just like this natural billiard prodigy. Yeah. And then 
it seems like that's just going to be like a one-off joke. But, but they carry it through. Not only do they carry it through the rest of that scene in the background while other conversations are happening, but meanwhile, she's just annihilating everyone else at, at, <laughs> at the game. But they pick it up at the very end of the episode in a final button where she has now been hustling people at billiards on a nightly basis at that bar, coming home at midnight every day, just hustling people. And when the dad finds out that she's pulling in cash from from this, he's like, all right, well, like we need to like up the stakes on this and realizes <laughs> that all the other guys there are now kind of on to it, that she's just going to win. So he's like, yeah. all right, we got to take this on the road <laughs> and, <laughs> and build her funny. up as a, as a pro shark. I like that they mentioned that she, she had she had watched the, the Color of Money twenty six times that week. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, yeah. that that is a trope. That is a nineties trope. I don't know if it's necessarily a sitcom trope, but like pool like scams, wasn't yeah. it? Well, pool, uh, the pool hustling, pool, pool hustling, pool, pool yeah, yeah, hustling was a trope. I can think of a few. Yeah, I can think of a few. There's, and I feel like Friends had an episode it's a where plot they do it. In and so many sitcoms, I'll tell you the most memorable one that came to mind when I was watching it, which was Uncle Phil. On Fresh Prince of Bel Air, <laughs> yeah. that's uh, the one I'm. That's the one I'm thinking Will of. Will was yeah. getting hustled real bad, yeah. and losing tons and tons of money, yeah. and needed Uncle Phil to come. It got real come. dark. That got, one. Well, yeah. what happened was like he's afraid that these guys are gonna get like violent or whatever yeah. if he doesn't pay up. So he ends up uh, getting Uncle Phil to come down just to kind of rescue him and get him out of there. But Uncle Phil out hustles the other pool hustlers and just like destroys them because it turns out that he's like fantastic at pool yeah and he's also like way smarter than them so he like does a double hustle thing on them yeah. and it's like this awesome scene but yeah it, it, that, it's a trope it's, it's a, a huge it's a trope. 90s trope but then as far as tess is concerned like tess at one point is at this cocktail party hosted by Bryn and is around all of her kind of uppity corporate female friends and they're like terrible so it's kind of what i did like was that it kind of shows both those women and the staten island women gossiping so <laughs> like at different points so it's kind of like they're both like the same but different uh yeah yeah but yeah but ultimately tess realizes that she has to have more of a balance between her friends and her family and her work I, I really liked from a character standpoint the the beat they sort of hit towards the end of it where uh, where Lana is talking to her about like oh you know like you're not gonna be like them you yeah know? because because we see you know she's been at this you know eight episodes now and we see in no way is she into this for the trappings of the job she is really interested in the work it's marketing by the way it's not finance in this yeah, she's yeah. she's in mark she's in marketing not finance yeah uh, yeah it's it, uh, we should note that in the movie if you haven't seen it mergers it's mergers and acquisitions, acquisitions which yeah, is yeah. you know a pretty you know sharkish yeah. high finance type of thing that would have been a pretty like late 80s thing to yeah to set but this in a world she's very very interested in the work she's not so interested in the trappings that go with it and they kind of hit a beat where Lana's like, well, you're going to be good at this job, but you're not going to play it the same way as they do. Like, you're not in this for prestige. You're in this because you like doing it. And I was just like, what a what a cool little character beat at the end of this sitcom. Uh, like that yeah. wasn't really, you know, like they they show what interests her in all this. And yeah, and I like that. I like that a lot. Just showing that, like when she is with these women, like 
Some of them are pretty damn terrible and some of them don't even seem to pay attention to what they're doing. Yeah. But she but there are ones who are going to be, you know, just like in any corporate world, there are idiots and there are people who are good at their job. Yeah. And like she's going to be one of the good ones. Yeah. yeah and, and I liked the way that that culminated uh, at the end of of what was the real conflict in that episode between her and 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 her friends and and her community this idea that the show has as its main core theme of this mm-hmm. sort of class conflict and and the two very different worlds that are colliding. And it was a nice way to culminate it, this idea of like yeah. her kind of panicking and thinking, maybe I shouldn't do this job because I don't want to be like I don't want to sell I don't out sell and out. leave yeah. behind everything that but matters to me. The problem also is in in that it was a really nice scene that that conversation between the two friends and that yeah. whole mm-hmm. thing of like, okay, so you don't feel like you fit in at work, but now you don't feel like you fit in at home with your friends because we're all thinking that you're an elitist and calling you out for it, and yeah. that wasn't right for us to do. So now we're making you feel like you don't fit in anywhere. And she's like, maybe I shouldn't do this job. And she's like, no, you should because you'll do it your way. Yeah. And yeah. that's what it's going to take to make that industry better is people like you doing it your way. Yeah. yeah. Which is I very think... true and it still rings true today. <laughs> yeah. It rings very true and it rings it really rung true to me as somebody who who works in finance in not marketing but in finance uh in a way that like I find that Hollywood doesn't always understand is that there are other there are ways to find satisfaction outside of artistic pursuits <laughs> and you don't see a Hollywood does Hollywood thinks that your dream is always going to be one thing. Yeah. And her finding the work interesting is something that really had to me because I'm like, I'm 10 years into a career and I like to be funny and artistic, but then there are parts of my job where I'm like, I'm really interested in this kind of work and what I'm doing and all that. Yeah. And I was like, really nice to see that for once on TV yeah. that, that, it's not just one thing like and yeah. like they show there's the sellout part of it, which everybody, you know, is what everybody usually sees. But then there's the other part where there are there's satisfaction to it yeah. as well. No matter what you do, no matter what kind of work you do, the reality is you're going to like have to sell out every once in a while. Like It just is what yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, It's in, about finding the balance. Yeah, in late stage <laughs> capitalism, we all have to sell out a little bit. Like, no one is yeah. completely pure in anything that they do. Like, <laughs> yes. maybe that's yeah, a cynical yeah. thing to say. No, that's about no. as cynical as I'm willing to ever go, but yeah, I, I, it's I like true. It. So I, I, like it. I didn't know that I'd be going into this, this uh, conversation for this episode where all three of us would pretty much be on the same page with this. Yeah. But... When I saw the pilot for this, I was initially a little concerned by the fact that they paid off her getting the promotion right away because I was like, oh, I'm surprised that they wouldn't milk the idea of her trying to move up from secretary to junior executive over the course of, if not the whole series, at least the season, because the movie set me up to think that that's the goal. The movie set me up to think that the final payoff is her getting that job because that's the payoff in the movie. And this show really wisely, in my opinion, and it seems like you both feel the same way, actually decided to do the opposite. Get that out of the way right away. And it's not about is she going to get this job as a junior executive? It's going to be about what does that mean for her in her life and where she lives and the people that she cares about and that sort of conflict between those two worlds. 
butting up against each other. The the working class yep. stat, Staten Island world, the elite Manhattan fancy people jobs world, and how she's going to navigate that. Yeah, which is much more interesting. Much more interesting. And it's very satisfying in that pilot, like seeing her get mm-hmm. the promotion. Like it is very satisfying and like it's it's very cute when like seeing her reaction and the reaction of Lana and Libby and the other secretary is just being like, yeah, like you got it, girl. Like it, it's yeah. just, well, yeah. Well, because after the pilot, I was thinking, okay, so now that they've where paid this, this off, go? where is this going to yeah. go? But yeah. then episode eight answers that question very deftly because it does a great job of showing yeah. that, like as we just talked about, that conflict between her and her friends back home and and what their assumptions are about what her new priorities are yeah. because she's climbing the ladder at this company and everything like that. And so it actually feels like, yeah, they thought this through and yeah. they landed on the best thematic approach to exploring this world in a way that does work quite well. And dare I say much better than in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it, it's weird. I, I feel like the movie does have a place sort of in the zeitgeist, but like in terms of like positive um, depictions of like women in the workplace, this sitcom like far surpasses it because the film is both written and directed very much with the male gaze. And, you know, I mean, there are certain things that are talked about in the movie uh, that are things worth talking about in terms of sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, that that is kind of explored in the movie, um, whereas it's not in the sitcom. But maybe that would have been too risque for like a primetime no. sitcom. They would they would have handled it. They, they would have they would have done it in some sort of way. For, sh- for but, sure, they would have handled it at some point. But it's almost like in in the movie, it's almost done in more of a salacious mm-hmm. way. It's almost like oh, it's just inevitable that I'm going to get chased. Like she literally says, chased around a desk. And it's like, oh boy, like that is, you know, rough. Uh, but it's it's darker. It's like meant to be darker in like the movie for sure. Mm-hmm. Whereas this sitcom is is definitely lighter. It's more, yeah, it's less cynical. It's more of a, you know, it's palatable. Exactly. But it's also a tone that you're gonna have in a multicam sitcom in 1990. Exactly. Yeah. Within the boundaries of that format, mm-hmm. this show does actually put a decent amount of thought it seems like into the commentary even if it's like in a in a more delicate touch it's pretty clear about these these points that it's making about how she's navigating this world and and yeah. what she's up against more i feel like than in just trying to think about other sitcoms from the time i feel like it it goes deeper than other most other shows that i can this, think of from the time yeah. It takes its characters way more serious than most sitcoms at that time did. Yeah. Like it put it the work is in them. The 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 work is in the characters. It 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 helps that, you know, we've only seen two episodes of this, and I still feel that both sides of her life were were as developed as the other. Like I yeah. I I felt like whenever we went to Staten Island, it didn't feel like we were going to another show. It didn't feel like like half-baked stuff like you understood what her life was like in staten island just as much as you understood what her life was like in new york i have to say i'm kind of sad that this wasn't more of a success yeah <laughs> yeah well like, we got more sandy bullock you we know, did. I, you know we did 
But this show could have really worked. It she, could have yeah. lasted. She, but you're right. She could have been she could have been a sitcom star. Like she could have been like, you know, oh, working girl ended uh, you know, after nine seasons. Yeah. Oh, we got her on another show already. You yeah. know, like that kind of thing. She could have been like the highest paid sitcom actress, you know. Not that, you know, her I think she has an Academy Award, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. Yeah, for the blind right. side. Blind side. Blind side, right. Also, uh, I suspect that this show might pass the Bechdel test. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which, one, 100% it passes the Bechdel test. You would be very yeah. hard-pressed to find another sitcom I think, from any yeah. era, from any year period I, I that think, does. I think the movie does, <laughs> but just barely. Just, like, just I was going to say, just they Maybe? still work in like you know talking about men a lot in that. Yeah, movie. I don't know. If, yeah, the movie we'd have to an we'd have to take some time to really analyze yeah. it and see. But this show, in multiple facets, it seems like it does. Yeah. Hey, Bring, why don't you do a six degrees of friends on this one, huh? All right. So, uh <laughs> <laughs> were you were you wearing your leather jacket when you said, huh? I don't care. That's the one you're getting. That's, oh, that's the setup. Oh yeah, I'm not. I'm not cutting that out. That's oh, boy. reusing that. Uh, yeah. So okay. So full disclosure, I went down a real rabbit hole with this Six Degrees of Friends. Um, you'll see why. Okay. So there's a bunch of connections. Like I feel like this show and Sandra Bullock specifically could be a giant like spider web or. You know, like, taking it in the corporate world, like a big org chart, like connected to friends. <laughs> you know, she's at the top and then there's like a million connections to friends somehow. Uh, yeah. So I'll just start with like the, the a first random one. So Robin Schiff, who was one of the writers of Working Girl, uh, wrote Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh. Which, hey. which starred, one of my favorites, uh, which starred Lisa Kudrow. And Lisa Kudrow was, of course, Phoebe Buffay on Friends. Boom, that's oh, two Phoebe degrees. Phoebe Buffay. Phoebe Buffay, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, okay, I'll, I'll end <laughs> with Sandra Bullock's connection. So George Newbern, who played Everett Rutledge on uh, Working Girl, had a reoccurring role on Friends. Oh, who did he play? So he played Danny, who was a neighbor. It was a late season thing. Like, so it was one of the later seasons. He was a neighbor of Rachel and Monica's. And Rachel had like this weird flirtation toward him. He was like, you know, the episode where she lies about going to a regatta gala? No. Uh, anyway, she's trying to impress him. <laughs> and he's a very like, he's a weird character. Like he's very like um, unreceptive to her advances and very inscrutable. So she can't figure out whether he's into her. So he's in like three episodes. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's uh, another one degree. We'll we'll go into Sandra Bullock now. So I went into this whole weird rabbit hole of exploring her very early movie credits. So her early movie credits really lent a lot of connection to friends. So she was in the movie Love Potion Number Nine alongside. Tate Donovan. Hey! Tate Donovan was a recurring character on Friends. So Sorry, that's... He's, Jimmy, he's Jimmy Cooper. I just I just love anybody connected to the OC. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. But yeah, so Tate Donovan played Joshua, 
on Friends, which was like basically the guy that broke up Ross and Rachel that one like for their one big breakup. Um, I mean, he also had sex with the girl from the copy shop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's, that's no. Yeah. Ross did. But he was like, that's why Ross was being an asshole and went and slept with Christina Pickles. Or is it Christina Pickles? No. It's Angela Featherstone. Christina Pickles is the, yeah. I think we're getting into the weeds on this one. We're getting into the weeds. Next, she was in a movie called When the Party's Over. Her co-star was Willie Garson, among many others, who was also in uh, episodes of Friends. Sandra Bullock was also in a movie called The Thing Called Love, which was a Peter Bogdanovich film. And it was co-starring Dermot Mulrooney. Dermot Mulrooney was also a recurring character on Friends. Another guy that like Rachel was trying to date. <laughs> that that's about it. Good degrees. Good degrees. Good, good degrees. All right, Bryn, uh, spinoff. All right, we'll start with Anthony Tyler Quinn, who played Sal. He's had a really long TV career since his time on Working Girl. We best know him as earlier mentioned as cool teacher turned foster father. Jonathan Turner on Boy Meets World and now Girl Meets World. He also had tons of recurring roles on other 90s shows, um, including Melrose Place, Caroline in the City, Days of Our Lives. The list goes on. He was like a big deal. Um, We'll also move on to David Schramm, who played Tess's dad, Joe, who was like endlessly charming. Uh, Right after Working Girl, he played Roy Biggins, the airline owner on Wings for seven seasons. So a that, Wings reference, yeah, finally. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so he had a long run on on Wings. Like he, that was like his biggest like TV success. After Wings, he turned to the theater and he performed like solidly on Broadway and different regional productions until his death in March of 2020. Oh wow. Um, I'll also mention now Edie Bird and. Judy Prescott, who played the fellow secretaries. Um, Edie Bird played Libby and Judy Prescott played Lana. They both have a ton of IMDb credits as well. Uh, They were mostly very memorable guest stars on a variety of sitcoms and dramas throughout the years. Um, Edie Bird sadly passed away in 99, but had like a very huge career until that point. Um, Tom O'Rourke who played A.J. Trask, who we don't really see that often, but, you know, he popped in here and there. He was a TV veteran already. He had a ton of credits. Um, One fun trivia thing that I just want to throw out there about him was that he was a recurring character on both Law & Order and Law & Order SVU, but he played two different characters. (laughs) That's really common on the Law & Orders. Yeah, but it's funny because in when I was like just quickly doing like a quick scan of his IMDb, I saw one was a lawyer and one was a judge. I'm like, oh, that's neat. Maybe in the other series, his lawyer character moved up to be a judge. But it was like, no, it was two different names. <laughs> it, it's pretty common on those shows for somebody to just be like a perp and then get hired as like a main cast member like a few years later. Yeah. And and sometimes that's within the same uh, like the same like the same yeah. story world, which is annoying. But yeah. And he, he sadly passed away in 2009. And then so we have Nana Visitor who played uh, the other antagonistic Bryn. Um, she had a very long career, tons of roles in, uh, in television, including her biggest role as, uh, Kira something or other, Barry, maybe you can help me out on Deep Space Nine. That was like 
<laughs> Something she, that completely missed me. She is Major Kira on Deep Space Nine. Yeah, and the, then she, the the best Star Trek show. Okay. Fight me, anybody? Okay, she, I'll, I'll 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 fight you on that. Yeah, she, another time. Uh, she also did several voices on Family Guy, which is kind of funny. Um, a lot of these cast members did a lot of voice work. It's a very interesting kind of tidbit. That's a perfect segue to our next cast member, BJ Ward, who played Tess's mom, Fran. She had a very uh, crazy long career as a voice actor. She has 223 IMDb credits, and I would say 90% of them are- How many? 223. That might be a new record. Yeah, and but there are 90% are voice acting roles. Wow. And fun fact, she's Helen Hunt's mom. Oh. Yeah. And then we have George Newbern, who played Everett, who I called the off-brand Paul Rudd, and I stand by that. Um, I have to say, you know, I don't know why I called him this kind of basic cardboard version, because he was quite funny in this show. So- you know, he is still the off-brand Paul Rudd, but like he does have a little more sparkle than I gave him credit for initially. Um, he's also done a ton of voice work, including voicing Sp- Superman more than once. Oh, right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah there it is. Yeah. Soon after Working Girl, he starred in Father of the Father of the Bride, the first movie, and then was in all the subsequent movies. So he plays Brian McKenzie, the the guy. Oh, he's the. Yeah. yeah, the husband. Uh. Um, and I always associate him with that movie. Whenever I see that guy, I'm like, oh, it's the father of the Brad guy. <laughs> um, yeah, he also had recurring roles on Designing Women, which was a big 90s hit. Uh, the, the show Bull, um, Providence, Reunion, which no one watched except me and, and Barry. <laughs> Barry, maybe we should do a spinoff uh, uh Oh uh, my podcast God. about reunion. Sh- oh, we sh- <laughs> oh, we should. Yeah, uh, he's also in Nip Talk and Scandal. And then finally, you know, we've got Sandy Bullock, who after Working Girl, I'm so intrigued by this two-year gap um, where basically she had nothing new of hers come out. So there's like, she had her stint on Working Girl in 90. And then it's kind of like, if you look at her IMDb, it's kind of like, crickets and then in 92 her first movie comes out which was when the party when the party's over Mm, and then mm. there was like a a handful of other um roles in similar type films but in 94 speed was released which is considered her first iconic role and then she became a massive star after that that girl from the bus that girl from the bus we watched what, what's the Jerry Stiller line? The I watched a very <laughs> provocative movie on cable last night. It was called The Net with that girl from the bus. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So yeah, so she became like a huge star after Speed, and then oh, you know, did she? Yeah, yeah. Everybody <laughs> knows what happened after that. You know, she was like the queen of the '90s, basically. And then you know it, it's true, Barry. Like she went, like really took a turn in her career later on. Like she's in a lot of dark stuff later on. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's uh, you know, I'd she's like had to an see. I'd career. like to see her do some lighter fare again. Yeah, I would. I would too. I'd like to see her be a little more. Yeah, like this reminded me how much I like, like you know, just really quick. Quick-witted, yeah, Sandra. Sandra Sandy Bullock. She really yeah. popped in this role. It was great. She yeah. did. She did. Um, I'll just quickly mention the two creators of the show. So Kimberly Hill, you know, seems to have kind of left TV after the '90s, 
Um, I did read about her that she went to divinity school and got a master's degree in like, you know, at divinity school in Yale. So she really went a religious route in life, I think. And uh, she I kind of saw stuff online about her becoming a playwright. So I don't know, maybe who knows? But all I can say is like her TV legacy is quite strong because she had some interesting credits before this. Um, like working on Facts of Life and other shows like that. But like, I would say this is like a, even though it technically wasn't a successful show, it is like a really, like she should be really proud of this show. Mm-hmm. I thought it was like a really well-written and really well-conceived show Um, and very positive, like a very, very positive messages about to women uh, like in the workplace or aspiring to be in the workplace. So you know, Kimberly Hill, if you're if you're out there, you're not probably listening to this, but I just say kudos to you. You made a really great show. Agreed. Yeah. And yeah, uh, her co-creator, Tom Patchett. Uh, fun fact, he also created Elf <laughs> <laughs> and so was presumably working on Elf at the same time as this. Uh, and they, then- they brought him they brought him into Elf this one up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then there uh, was a cute you know, dog. Yeah, in the pilot. I was going to mention Patches in the Leftovers, but anyway, yeah, so Tom Patchett, who created Elf, just seemingly kind of just focused on the Elf story world after the show didn't really go anywhere. Because <laughs> yeah, I can't see that many credits after that, but it was like He knew elf, where his elf, bread elf, was buttered. Elf, elf, yeah. That was his crowning achievement. There's a lot of people's crowning achievements. Yeah. Well, that was fun. That was awesome. <laughs> Aaron, should we check in with uh, Mr. Producer? Uh, I think that we should. Yeah, give him a call. Hey, kid, how's it going? Well, hello, Mr. Producer. You're pretty prompt today. Well, kid, I'll be honest. I feel like my last few calls, I've been flying by the seat of my pants a bit. I wanted to give you a bit more of a fair shake. Oh, no, you've been great. No, 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 I can be a little bit aloof, I know. My idiosyncrasies are not unknown to me. (laughs) So from here on out, nothing but serious takes from your old pal, Mr. Producer. Oh, well, I appreciate that. No more meandering tangents. Gotcha. If I start straying off the beaten path, you just tell me. Okay, so today we're talking about Working Girl. Oh, sure, sure, the sitcom based on the movie. I know that one. Did you have any connection to the show? I was involved very early on in the production, as is the case with a lot of these shows. I had some feedback on some early drafts. Did anything change? Honestly, not all that much. Surface stuff, really. We were all just such big fans of the picture, we really just wanted to do right by it. So naturally, we started by seeing if we could attract some of the stars to come back. Oh, so you guys tried for Melanie Griffith? Uh, no. Sigourney Weaver? No, no, no. We went for the big cheese himself, Mr. Harrison Ford. Oh, that's interesting. What, for like a cameo? No, no, no. We wanted him to lead the show. I mean, who's better than Harry Ford? That kid could sell dish rags to a towel store. He's 79. That can't possibly be a saying. So we went to him with a draft, you know, very similar to what Ed. Very, very similar. Except instead of Sandy Bullock as the working girl facing the adversities of climbing the male-dominated corporate world, we had... A handsome white man in a suit? That's correct. And 
what did Harrison Ford say to this idea? He takes me by the shoulder. You know, we're at the Vista Arms Hotel, you know, in Sacramento. You ever been to the Vista Arms Hotel in Sacramento, Aaron? I have not, no. Oh, you've got to go. It is glorious. Easily 3.5 stars. In fact, <laughs> you know, if anyone at the Vista Arms is listening to this show, I left my glasses in room 281, February 17th, 1990. You call my office, I'll send someone right over. Uh, I don't know if we have a lot of listeners in the Sacramento hospitality industry. Well, you never know. So. So. What did he say? What did who say? Harrison Ford. Oh, sure, sure. Takes me by the shoulder. He says, Tony. We were tight, so he called me Tony. You can call me Tony, too, if you want. You know, it is my middle name. Maybe another time. Tony, he says, no fucking way. And? Well, I got my integrity. No Harry Ford, no Tony P. I walked, but that was a fine show. How many episodes do they do again? Eight. I could have easily done ten. All right. Uh, well, I think we're uh, at the end of another episode. Has anybody got any, like, leftovers? I got a couple things. So one that, like, is relevant and one that is a complete non sequitur. So okay. the relevant one first, uh, I thought it was an interesting comparison between the movie and the sitcom that in episode eight, the plot about her, like, makeover... In the movie, she uh, goes about trying to change her appearance and, and change her accent and all of that to try to fit in better. And in the sitcom, it's not her taking the initiative to do that. It's like a My Fair Lady scenario, uh, I guess the Pygmalion thing, where they, from like a top-down thing, they're like, no, 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 you have to do this. We're going to do this to you. And when I yeah. first saw that, I thought... Maybe the movie version of that is the better version, the idea that she's the one taking the initiative or she has the agency. But then by the end of it, I'm like, no, no, it's no, it's, it's not, not because because she is good enough just the way exactly. she is. It's better that she's that not someone else is telling her yeah. she's shit. Exactly. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, like she knows from within that she's fine just the way she is. Exactly. And the way yeah. that it pays off with the overall yeah. theme of the episode being that like, no, she doesn't need to change. And, you know, she's having to put up with some of the things that uh, are trappings of this job. But the fact that they're doing it to her and imposing yeah. this on her is the better way to go yep. with yeah. the character. Yeah, it's a very, I think it's a very deliberate screenwriting yeah. choice. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is, this is just coincidentally, I happened to read because we were talking a lot about the Staten Island Ferry. Here's a funny little news nugget. Oh, I know what you're going to say. So, I read this too. <laughs> Pete Davidson and Colin yeah, Jost yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> went out and bought a decommissioned Staten Island ferry boat to turn it into a floating comedy club. Which is amazing. The boat is called the John F. Kennedy. They're both from Staten Island and took the ferry into Manhattan to work in comedy. They bought this ferry boat. And it was only $280,000, which seems very yeah. reasonable. That sounds very low. For a giant Staten Island ferry Maybe boat. Maybe it's like a, it's just a shell. Maybe it needs a lot of work. Oh, yeah. But they're like, probably putting money is, yeah. into that. They're not going to have it move. My understanding is it's just going to be docked somewhere. Like it's like basically a comedy barge. Yeah. And yeah. they're yeah. just going to turn it into a comedy club that'll just be permanently docked that's, somewhere. That's fun. That's I'd, really fun. I'd go. I'd yeah. go. They, they I'd actually go. talked about it on SNL last night. The two <laughs> Did of them. they? Oh, that's yeah, funny. On, on, on Weekend Update. Yeah. That's hilarious. Okay. <laughs> 
So one of like my leftovers is something that was already mentioned that Patches the dog was cute. And this was from like the opening scene of, of the pilot where Tess is asked to dog sit for one of the one of her bosses. And I was like, oh, I would have liked to have that task. That would have been my favorite task. Uh, he was one of those. He didn't cute- even bring her. A, he didn't bring her a leash. I know. Yeah, I was like, what? What do you expect her to do? Or food, um, or anything, really. It's just yeah. like, here's a dog. Deal with this. Yeah, a very <laughs> cute dog. Um, also, yeah, one major thing to to mention is that the role of Tess actually wasn't even supposed to be Sandra Bullock. It was meant to be. Um, it was written for Nancy McKeon from uh, Facts of Life. She played Joe mm. in Facts of Life, whom obviously uh, Kimberly Hill would have worked with on, on Facts of Life. So it was supposed to be, it was like imagined for her and then Sandra Bullock replaced her. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Any leftovers for you, Barry? No. I got nothing. <laughs> All I got right. nothing. <laughs> All right. Well, this was a fun show to talk about. It was. Had a, had a lot of laughs. so i guess uh so tune in next time for another one of these adaptations from a successful movie into a sitcom i kind of feel bad about calling it bad adaptation now because this one was good yeah that's true yeah 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 but i'm keeping the name because it's fun all right it it failed (laughs) (laughs) true cut to credits That Was a Show is created and hosted by Bryn Burney, Andrew Barry Helmer, and myself, Aaron Yeager. It's a production of Radio Gizmo in Toronto, Canada. Subscribe, rate, review, and share. Follow us on Instagram and tell your friends about it. That Was a Show? Radio Gizmo.